invite you to turn in the Word of God this morning to Song of Solomon chapter 6. Song of Solomon chapter 6. We may read from chapter 5 a little, but we're in chapter 6 at this stage. Tremendous worship this morning. My heart's thrilled already. So encouraged. The choir piece and the singing of the congregation. Thank the Lord for the gift of singing, the joy that He has placed in our hearts, and all that He means to those who are loved by Him. You'll notice, as we mentioned in the email, that hymnals are now available to you. We want to, uh, in due course, return to a normal format of the bulletin, as well as the usage of the hymnals exclusively, rather than having them all in the bulletin. So, uh, if you have a still concerned of whatever reason and you'd like for the bulletin to uh, have the music in it, let us know just so we have an idea. If we have to extend that out a little longer just yet, uh, we'll be happy to do that if that's the case. But uh, I know many of you are looking forward and very thankful to return to the hymnal as well. And that will facilitate us also having favorites in the evening at some point in the near future also. So we need the hymnal to do that. And we look forward to that as well. Certainly difficult. There's sometimes you, you're looking through, you're trying to, oh, I want this hymn, and then you realize it goes across into two pages. You think that's not going to work with the, with the bulletin. It's going to cause all sorts of issues trying to order everything. So there have been some hymns that I've been wanting to sing, and I haven't been able to sing them because they cross over into a second page. And I say, well, that's, that's no good. So... I'm thankful that <laughs> with the hymnal returning, I don't have to go through all of that. I can choose whatever hymn I feel is fitting for the message and for our time together. And uh, there's been a lot of work in organizing with uh, John Gardner and Don Barrett. We're very thankful for their labors and helping as we went to that format uh, last year. So uh, praise the Lord for help and thank the Lord for how we seem to be getting through this time and returning to some uh, normality. But we are coming to the Lord's table this morning, and as we've been doing now for a couple of years, we've turned our attention almost, uh, certainly in the vast majority of occasions, to the Song of Solomon, just to direct our thoughts to Christ and what He has done for us, and to help us in our meditation. So we come again to the Song of Solomon. We've reached chapter 6, but we're going to read from verse... Well, maybe we'll go back to verse 2, just to get the whole context of and flow of what's going on here. So, Song of Solomon, chapter 5, verse 2. Let's hear the word of the Lord and prepare our hearts for the Lord's table. I sleep, but my heart waketh, and is the voice of my beloved that knocketh, saying, Open to me, my sister, my love, my dove, my undefiled. For my head is filled with dew, and my locks with the drops of the night. I have put off my coat, how shall I put it on? I have washed my feet, how shall I defile them? My beloved put his hand by the hole of the door, and my bowels were moved for him. I rose up to open to my beloved, and my hands dropped with myrrh, and my fingers with sweet-smelling myrrh upon the handles of the lock. I opened to my beloved, but my beloved had withdrawn himself and was gone. My soul failed when he spake. I sought him, but I could not find him. I called him, but he gave me no answer. The watchmen that went about the city found me. They smote me. They wounded me. The keepers of the walls took away my veil from me. I charge you, O daughters of Jerusalem, if you find my beloved, that you tell him that I am sick of love. What is thy beloved more than another beloved, O thou fairest among women? What is thy beloved more than another beloved, that thou dost so charge us? My beloved is white and ruddy, the chiefest among ten thousand. His head is as the most fine gold, his locks are bushy and black as a raven. His eyes are as the eyes of doves by the rivers of waters, washed with milk and fitly set. His cheeks are as a bed of spices, as sweet flowers, his lips like lilies dropping sweet-smelling myrrh. His hands are as gold rings set with the burl. His belly is as bright ivory overlaid with sapphires. His legs are as pillars of marble set upon sockets of fine gold. His countenance is as Lebanon, excellent as the cedars. His mouth is most sweet. Yea, he is altogether lovely. 
This is my beloved, this is my friend, O ye daughters of Jerusalem. Whether is thy beloved gone, O thou fairest among women, whether is thy beloved turn aside, that we may seek him with thee. My beloved has gone down into his garden, to the beds of spices, to feed in the gardens, and to gather lilies. I am my beloved's, and my beloved is mine. He feedeth among the lilies. Amen. May the Lord write his word in our hearts and give us the insight that we need, the help of the Spirit to consider his word this morning and to feast on Christ and all that he has done for us as we have it revealed to us this morning. Let's pray. Let's seek the Lord again for his help. God, we thank thee for thy word. Thy word has directed our worship already today. It has encouraged us in truths that we never tire of hearing. We come before one who is reigning, one who forgives sinners, one whom we love, one who is ours and to whom we belong. And God, we pray today that thy word would come with power, efficacy, relevance to every waiting heart, that all burdens would be lightened today, that faith will rise and lay hold on sweet gospel promises, that the burden of sin may roll away and wash away under the blood of Christ, that our hearts would be lifted up to behold Thee, see Thee, worship Thee, magnify Thee, and to know Thee. So give much of the Spirit of God. Blessed, sweet Spirit of God, don't pass over us. Come and be amongst us. Come, blessed Spirit, and reveal the Son of God to your hearts by faith. May we see Him. Oh, enlighten our understanding. Help us to behold Him. Help us to love Him. Help us to know that He's here in our midst. Oh, may we not miss out. May we respond quickly to Christ. Hear then these are prayers. Revive thy church and meet with all of us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We return this morning, beloved, to Solomon's greatest song in order to help us as we sit at the table of the Lord and commune with our Lord Jesus Christ. That's what we intend to do today. The table of the Lord is not for everyone. It's for those already in communion with Christ. Those of you who have a testimony, those of you that can say that I am saved, my sins are forgiven, I maybe I'm not everything that I need to be, but I love the Lord. I trust in Him. The cross means everything to me. The value of my merit before God is Jesus Christ, not me. And so we have this total, entire trust in Jesus Christ. We are resting in Him and what He has done. And our answer on the day of judgment, should we be asked, though I don't know how it all will fall out, but should we be asked, what is the merit What is the value? What is the argument that warrants your entrance into glory? It is Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And so this book puts before us the sweet sense of fellowship that we can enjoy. And it does so in terms of the relationship that we can have even in this life. The relationship that exists between Christ and His people so often is reflected through the whole institution of marriage and the relationship between husband and wife. And so as we've gone through this book, we have seen a period of courtship, chapter 1 through to chapter 3, verse 5, the wedding, chapter 3, verse 6 to chapter 5, verse 1, and then the marriage, chapter 5, verse 2 through to chapter 8. We see these various stages, and we can say it by this stage, that is coming into the latter part of chapter 5 and into chapter 6, that the, the honeymoon is over. <laughs> We're into the marriage. Reality has hit. We have to face the fact that the early sunrise of romance is no longer quite what it once was, and at times that can bring a complacency, a sense of not truly appreciating one another. And we have have seen this in her life because he came and he sought to come near to her and she was found sleeping. She was asleep. She's not cut off from him, 
She's, she says in verse 2, I sleep, but my heart waketh. And there's this complacency then when she ought to have been awake, awaiting his return, inviting him in. Yet we find that she's asleep. And so by the time that she is aroused and comes to understand that he has been knocking, he's gone. He's already away. Indicating again this complacency and what it can have in terms of its resulting influence upon the relationship. And this happens in marriage. You get complacency in marriage. Any of us married know it. It has its highs and it has its lows. Periods of complacency. Periods where we have to acknowledge that we have been taking one another for granted. Where we have not been loving and truly desiring to reflect that love the way we should. And it's true also of our fellowship with the Lord. We have complacent periods in our fellowship with Christ where we aren't truly loving Him, seeking Him, going after Him, going after Him, where we have highs and we have lows, and at times we, we, we have Him withdrawing from us. Periods where we have to acknowledge, I do not sense His nearness. That may be the case for some of you this morning. You don't sense the nearness of the Lord. I look upon you every Lord's Day morning and I wonder that. Who is here that's missing out? Who is here that has become distant from Christ? So she begins to arise, awaken, go after him. She makes a charge to the daughters of Jerusalem. Verse 8, they're called. If you find my beloved that you tell him that I am sick of love. So she doesn't know where he is at this stage. And verse 9, then they come back with an inquiry, what, o thou, what is thy beloved more than another beloved, O thou fairest among women? What is thy beloved more than another beloved that thou dost so charge us? And so the first question they bring to her as she charges them, help me in finding him, is, well, what is he? What is he? What's his value? What, what's the big deal? And she responds to that. We saw that. Verse 10, my beloved is white and ruddy, the chiefest among 10,000. I said last month that this argues for the general fitness of the bridegroom being unsurpassed, that the general fitness of the bridegroom is unsurpassed. You see that? He is the chiefest among 10,000. You can't, you can't find an equivalent. There is no comparison But from verses 11 through 16, when it gives certain features, we saw that his specific features are also unsurpassed. I didn't spend a lot of time going through all the features, desiring rather to see that she is purposefully describing him from top to bottom. She is going from the head down to the feet, describing him in a very particular, deliberate fashion to show, to undergird to give evidence to the original statement that he is the chiefest among 10,000. There's no one like him. He's a head of gold and so on and so forth. And as a result, as a result of her presentation of him, her expression and testimony of who he is, what is he, what's the big deal, her answer generates another inquiry that we find in verse 1 of chapter 6. Whither is thy beloved gone, O thou fairest among women? Where is he? So you've told us what he is, and it has caused our curiosity to arise. Our, our interest is piqued. We, we want to understand a little more. We want to grasp a little more. So where is he? Which, of course, you wonder, well, why are they asking this? <laughs> she has come to them originally saying, if you find him, tell him that I'm looking for him. So then they come back, almost losing sight of the original question. So caught up in the expression of the loveliness of the bridegroom, they then ask the same question, where is he? They're interested now as well. And in the verses that we look at this morning, verses 1 through 3 of chapter 6, you have a fascinating pattern of revival. You have... The occasion where the church loses out with the Lord. And then the Lord withdraws His presence, which eventually causes a stir in the church. Some begin to wonder, where's the Lord gone? Why are we not meeting with the Lord anymore? 
Why is there this want of his presence, this, this sense of lack of, of the real, expressed, felt, known presence of the Lord? Where is it? The church then arises, begins to seek, and by and by the world notices and wonders, what, what's the big deal? What is he? And in her revived state, she begins to talk about the Lord in a way that even the world takes notice. The world doesn't take notice of the church when the church is asleep. The world doesn't pay attention. The world might know the church is there, that Christians exist, but they don't really pay attention until the church has this experience of revived love, of, of keen interest, of excitement. And with that excitement, then, she draws attention to herself. And so the world wonders, what's it all about? Is that all what happened in the first century? These simple fishermen, these simple individuals of Galilee, so excited, so overtaken with the knowledge of, of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, died and risen again, that they, they're, they're so captivated by it that Jerusalem can't ignore it, and Judea can't ignore it, and Samaria can't ignore it, and the uttermost parts of the earth can't ignore it. So tonight, this, this morning, rather, we're considering when revival influences the world, when revival influences the world. And note with me, first of all, it brings an inquiry to the church. It brings an inquiry to the church. Whether is thy beloved gone, O thou fairest among women? Whether is thy beloved turned aside, that we may seek him with thee? Three things to note here. First, it's an inquiry in which they recognize the impact of the gospel. It's an inquiry in which they recognize the impact of the gospel. Because, again, they call her fairest among women. Now, they've already called her this. They've acknowledged this in verse 9. They do the same again. The church's beauty, therefore, is seen as she seeks for Christ. Even in that initial exchange, as she's seeking after Christ, there is an emanation, a recognition of what Christ had already pronounced her as, fairest among women, way back earlier in the book. And now they're acknowledging it, they're seeing it, and they express it again. This is what the Bible reveals in terms of, of, of favor, it is a peculiar divine fever that the church sometimes enjoys as she seeks after the Lord. In Exodus chapter 11, verse 3, we're told there that the Lord gave the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. Moreover, the man Moses was very great in the land of Egypt, in the sight of Pharaoh's servants, and in the sight of the people. Exodus 11 is just before the final plague. It's just before, really, the, the, the climax and conclusion of that particular period of their time being in captivity, uh, being slaves to the Egyptians. That's all coming to a close. And at the close of that, the Lord gave the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. And at this juncture, they go and ask for their gold and their silver, and the Egyptians grant, grant it to them. They, they give it. They, they plunder the Egyptians by a simple request. Give us your gold and your silver. The Lord gave them favor. This kind of favor is often associated with living according to the Word of God. Putting God's Word as a priority of your life. Now, in Proverbs chapter 3, when the son is encouraged to keep the commandments of the father, you read in verse 4, So shalt thou find favor and good understanding in the sight of God and man. Now, boys and girls, I want you to listen to this. I want you to pay attention to this because here the father is speaking to the son and he's saying, this is how to find favor before God and men. It is keep my commandments, keep my word, take my word to heart. And what you find is all these examples in scripture of, of young people who took the word of God to heart and then were favored and blessed and used of the Lord. So for example, we're told about Samuel. When Samuel was just a boy, you know about Samuel, boys and girls. Samuel was just a boy called to be a servant of the Lord. And as a young boy living there with Eli, we are told in 1 Samuel 2.26, the child Samuel grew on and was in favor both with the Lord and also with men. 
the favor of God was upon his life as Samuel lived dedicated to God's cause, even from his earliest years. The same is true of Daniel. Daniel chapter 1 verse 9. The boys and girls here, all of you know about Daniel. In Daniel 1 verse 9, God had brought Daniel into favor and tender love with the prince of the eunuchs. So he's taken into captivity. He finds himself in a godless environment, and yet he is still favored because Daniel is putting God first in his life. And of course, the perfect example, the Lord Jesus we're told in Luke 2, verse 52, speaking of his childhood, of his early years, Jesus increased in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. And boys and girls, this is what you want. You want to have the favor of God and the favor of men in your life. That's how to have a significant life, a life that makes a difference, whatever way it looks. Wherever you find yourself, whatever your employment, whatever your place on this earth, and it comes, going by Proverbs 3, understanding God's will for your life and doing it, living out the will of God in all of its teaching. <clears throat> but what is true <clears throat> excuse me, <clears throat> of the individual can also be true of the church in days of revival. So we know individuals, we've known individuals, and maybe we've sometimes been the individual that's living revived living in joy, uh, that we, we just can't get enough of the Lord. We're, we're, we're just always running after the Word, seeking the place of prayer, enjoying fellowship with God. But we kind of feel ourselves to be a little bit isolated in that condition. That often is the case. But it can be true collectively. Is this not what happened at the day of Pentecost? In Acts chapter 2, verse 46 they, continuing daily with one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, did eat their meat with gladness and singleness of heart, praising God <clears throat> and having favor with all the people. Note that, favor with all the people. And the Lord added to the church daily such as should be saved. So there's, there's, there's this mighty outpouring of the Spirit on the day of Pentecost. Thousands are converted to Jesus Christ. They're all enjoying God and they're having favor. The sense is that they can't be ignored. People are paying attention. They recognize their piety, their love for Christ, their interest in spiritual things, and it's on another level to what they see normally. And so the Pharisees are there, and the scribes are there, and all the normal religious activity is going on, temple worship, and so on and so forth, but there's something different about these people, and they're obtaining favor because they can't be ignored because they're living in a heightened spiritual state. They're enjoying a revived sense of fellowship with God. And so it's not just one individual. It's not just Peter and John and the rest of the apostles. But all are enjoying this sweet sense of intimate fellowship with the Lord. And the entire community are watching on and taking notice. And they obtain this favor. Now, it doesn't always mean that the world will like what it sees and come alongside. But at least it, it gets attention. You see, we are, we are called to live in a certain way that the world notices. And these daughters of Jerusalem, depicted as outside the, the primary relationship of the bride and the bridegroom, they're inquiring. They, they want to know more. They, they are the world, if you like. They are those watching on. And what they think about us matters to a certain degree. doesn't mean to say we compromise based upon their opinions, but... This sense of obeying God, living out His Word, and that obtaining a certain kind of favor or influence upon the community is important. And so Paul exhorts in Colossians 4 verse 5, Walk in wisdom toward them that are without. 1 Thessalonians 4.12, that you may walk honestly toward them that are without. And it is important in form of leadership, any position of leadership, Deacons, elders also need to keep in mind, moreover, he must have a good report of them which are without. The world is watching. The daughters of Jerusalem are observing your life. And they are to see something that is distinct, that is different, that makes them pay attention and go, what do you have that I don't have? And, and where is this Jesus? So it's an inquiry in which they recognize the impact of the gospel, they see in her that she's fairest among women. 
This is something that has been imputed to her by Jesus Christ. She's living out the gospel, enjoying it, looking for Christ further. And the world, the world gathers in wondering, how, how can we obtain this? How can we get to the same Lord? Also, it's an inquiry in which they challenge the complacency of the church. It's an inquiry in which they not only recognize the impact of the gospel, but challenge the complacency of the church. Because when they ask, whether is thy beloved gone, O thou fairest among women, whether is thy beloved turned aside, there's a hint in this inquiry in which, how did this come to pass? How is it that you're separated. Why would he leave you? How come he is not with you? And so in their challenge, whether, whether intended or not, is a challenge to our complacency. How come we don't know where he is? How come he's not with us? Sometimes the world can ask things of us, whether intentionally or not, that can challenge us. If you see people around you, if you can imagine for a moment, though this is unusual, but if you can imagine for a moment that some of the ungodly people you work with are maybe unbelieving people in your neighborhood, if they started to ask some serious pressing questions about the Christian life and who Jesus Christ is, there could be a sense of challenge that comes with that. I recall to mind a story, I think it's Leonard Ravenhill tells this story, and I'm not sure, 100% sure, but I think it was Ravenhill told the story of a man who was in death row and facing the the certainty of his own demise and his death. And they call for a chaplain to come along and to read the Word of God and help prepare him for eternity. And as he went through what he had to say, as he read scriptures, maybe praying, I don't know all that happened, but, 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 but the man looked at the chaplain and asked him, do you really believe what you say you believe? And he came back and he or carried on in his words saying, because if I really believed what you say you believe, I would crawl the length of the land on my hands and knees across broken glass to even win one person, to win one soul. You think about that. An unbelieving person challenging the church, do you really believe what you say you believe? Or are we inconsistent with our profession? That if souls are actually going to hell, if they die without Christ, there they suffer for all eternity without hope of remedy or relief. How can we be indifferent? If our little ones can only be saved by God stepping in and opening their hearts, that no amount of morality and good education extracurricular activities that none of that will actually make a meaningful difference in their eternity but God has promised to use the means of grace that as we pray for them instruct them in the word of God remain faithful day by day to exhibit what he has called us to be before them what is more important then then every single day there's a consistent pattern of love for Christ, bringing the Word, praying for their souls, pouring over them in terms of endeavoring to help them understand and pointing them and, and living in such a way 
where they will never be able to question the fact that what we taught them actually mattered to us. That they can see our tears on occasion at family worship. Dad's crying tonight. He's weeping as he's mentioning my name. As he's praying for my salvation. Sometimes we can be challenged by the world looking and really questioning, look, if you really believe this, where is he? How come, how come you're not going after him? How come you're not with him? How would you ever let him out of your sight? So it's an inquiry in which they challenge the complacency of the church, whether it's intentional or not. But thirdly, it's an inquiry in which they revealed their interest in Christ. It's an inquiry in which they revealed their interest in Christ, that we may seek Him with thee. It is when our delight in Christ is fresh that people may begin to consider Him. Look at, look at this person. Their whole life revolves around Jesus Christ. They, they can't talk, but they're talking about Jesus Christ. They, they, you can't get a conversation with them without in some way them turning it around to Jesus Christ. What's wrong with this person? That's a good testimony to have. That's a good testimony to have. It's not like you can't talk about other things. Don't misunderstand me. But to have such a testimony that, that you, you're so clearly delineating your life as one that is in love with Christ, given to Christ, sold out to Christ, and loyal to Christ. I maybe mentioned it before, but when Albert Macaulay, I started to go, travel with him in the open airs and go around doing outreach with this dear man of God, he said to me one day, he said, I have to take you to meet the God first woman. It's like, what, what a way to introduce someone, the God first woman. And I was like, sure, I'll love to meet the God first woman. And the reason she was called that was because it didn't matter what she was wearing. She had a little badge right here that said, God first. And that's why he called her, God first. And other people called her the same thing. Didn't For years she had this little thing here telling the world, God first. The God first woman, that's how he referred to her. How are you referred to? If the world was to encapsulate your life, in what way would they do that? What language would they use? We need to have a deep love for Christ that the world will even turn and say that we may seek Him with thee. You've piqued our interest. You've caused us to pay attention. And so on the day of Pentecost again, when the outpouring of the Spirit of God, when the whole church is revived, what's the question the world says? Men and brethren, what shall we do? You've done something. What are we to do? Well, what, what, with, with this message, what is our response to be? We're, we're, we're throwing ourselves in submission. We, we feel the impact of our deeds. We understand our need for salvation. Help us to know what to do. Or as the Greeks who came to Philip and inquired, Sir, we would see Jesus. The, the world is coming looking for, looking for guidance. Or as the Philippian jailer cried out in despair, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? This is the beginning influence of revival. And once the church is revived, living as she ought to be living, inquiries may come from unusual quarters, from unusual individuals, and then you get this collective seeking of the Lord. So it's not just you going after, but that we may seek Him with thee. I, I, I so remember that. I so remember that experience in my own conversion when immediately... The, 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 there's this, this immediate transformation of friendship. Right? All these friends that didn't, had no interest in the gospel, and immediately, once I was converted, I, was, I wanted to be with the people who loved the Lord. And it was so radical. It was so... 
It was so marked going from friendship with the world to friends with those in the church. It was so marked. One of my best friends I grew up with said to me on one occasion long afterwards, he said it was like a death. It's like one day you were there, the next day you were, you were gone. And I used to feel guilty about it. I used to think I shouldn't have cut off so cleanly. I should have maintained that, that connection with them and, and tried to reach them in some fashion or whatever. And then I grow, grow a little more, get, get a little older, a little wiser. And you realize, you know, if I had done that, the chances are my growth would have been greatly stunted. The daughters of Jerusalem can't get where they need to be if they just watch her go after, but that we may seek him with thee. This is what we want, isn't it? We want our unsaved family members and loved ones to say, we want to seek him with you. We want to join with you. We want to participate with you. We want to be a part of what you're part of. Don't leave us out. The church always has revived individuals. Always has those that are living in close fellowship and intimacy with Christ. People like Anna and Simeon. But it's often a lonely walk. But oh, that the Lord would bring in days when there's this collective desire that we may seek Him. Let us all go after Him. Let us all pursue Him. This is the day we look for. So we have noted, as we consider when revival influences the world, that it brings an inquiry to the church, but also it offers an opportunity for the church. It offers an opportunity for the church. Verse 2, My beloved has gone down into his garden, to the beds of spices, to feed in the gardens, and to gather lilies. What's this all about? Well, first we get an opportunity to explain Christ's presence in the church, to explain Christ's presence in the church. When there's revival, when there's a broadening influence of interest in the things of God, then there comes this inquiry about, about how we can be a part of it and what it means for, for Christ to be present in His church. You remember back in chapter 4, verse 12, I think is the first reference where we have mention of a garden. Chapter 4, verse 12, a garden enclosed is my sister, my spouse. And we, we liken the garden to, to the church, to the body of Christ, to the place where the Lord dwells among His people in this garden. Verse 16 of the same chapter, Awake, O north wind, and come thou south, blow upon my garden. There's this outpouring of the Lord's power and grace upon His church. Chapter 5, verse 1, I am come into my garden, my sister, my spouse. So this sense of garden is the place where men fellowship with the Lord, just like at the beginning. Eden, the place where God fellowship with Adam and Eve, where the Lord himself came and made himself known in a particular fashion. So we have this imagery put before us in this language. We have a garden put before us, a place of fellowship where God walked with Adam and Eve in the beginning and where God continues to meet with his people in garden-like places. And I think I mentioned it on those occasions that when you study carefully the language that relates to the description of the tabernacle and then later the temple, they have garden imagery. There is reminders of Eden all around them. And when you get to the future, New Jerusalem, again you have garden language to remind us of the first place of fellowship. And so you have this continuity in all the places, listen, in all the places where God reveals himself to men, it is like a garden. It is like Eden. It's that place. And so we look back, yes, in that place where there was no sin, nothing to mar fellowship. There was a beautiful garden that was perfectly fitted for man's sustenance and life and so on and so forth. But there also was where God met with Adam and Eve. And so let's not forget that all through the rest of the, the history of Israel, they were to have these little reminders that, that garden imagery, this is where God met with your forefathers. Still to this day, it is the case. You say, well, we don't have gardens in the New Testament. 
What does the New Testament have to say about gardens? What grows in the church today? You still have things growing, don't you? Tell me you know that things still grow in the church, reflecting a garden-like imagery and symbolism. Why is it that the work of the Spirit of God in the life of the believer is called the fruit of the Spirit? Because there's still things growing in the church. The church is the garden. Fruit is being born, growing to the glory of God. And the Spirit of God, as He moves upon the hearts of His people, brings growth, brings a garden that flourishes. And beloved, the last thing we want to be is a garden that's barren. That we're sitting here and we have no fruit to offer to God. No life changed. No interest in the things of Christ. No increasing holiness. No increase of joy and peace and love and so on. We want those things to flourish. We want to love more than we ever have before. Experience more joy than we ever had before. More peace. More temperance and contentment. More, more ability to, to, to express our faith in Christ. Stronger faith for Him. These are things that are to flourish. The fruit of the Spirit isn't to just, hey, look, we have one harvest and hey, there's some, not some evidence of the Spirit's working at some point in my life. But as the seasons come through life, we want it to flourish and grow. This body, this church would, would be a garden manifesting what Galatians 5 expresses should be found in the life of every believer. So, looking at the text again, my beloved has gone down into his garden. Isn't this interesting? And all of a sudden she remembers where to find him. They asked her before. Why are you asking us? You're, you're coming to us asking where he is. And that begins the whole dialogue between her and the daughters of Jerusalem. But now, now she remembers. He's gone down into his garden. Why does she remember? Because her love for him, the work of the Spirit in her life, is increasing this entire time. There are occasions in the life of the believer when they are low spiritually, weak spiritually, indifferent spiritually. They won't read their Bible. They won't pray. They are not enjoying the Lord. They're starting to wonder, am I even saved? And they go through this. They go through this. And they tend to be the ones most likely to stay away from the church. It's like they forget that the church, the assembly of the saints, is the place where we, they meet with the Lord. And so there they are going through their spiritual depression, going through the doldrums of misery, spiritual melancholy. And it gets worse and worse and worse, and they, and they detach themselves more and more from the body of Christ, and it just intensifies But if they are to have one moment of awakening, one moment of reviving, often that will immediately help them to call to remembrance. I need to be found among the Lord's people. Why am I even asking the world where to find the Lord? I know where to find the Lord. He's where His people are. God is never separated from his people. And the singing of the indissoluble union of the child of God with his God. I am his and he is mine. And pondering that, this, this, this is forever. But while God and I shall be, I am his and he is mine. So where do I find the Lord? Wherever I can find his people. So my beloved has gone down into his garden. Of course he is. He's going to be with his people. And when you read the words gone down, it may be geographical, it may be topographical, but it also may be spiritual. Indicating something of the condescension of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
that as God is truly known, as God is to be truly experienced in this world, it will be in the revelation of a son, incarnate, bone of our bone, flesh of our flesh, taking on our humanity. So if I'm going to see God, I must see him in the face of Jesus Christ. If I'm going to know God, I must behold the Lamb of God. If I'm going to understand what it is to be in fellowship with God, it is seeking Christ. And so the Jews, they rejected Jesus Christ. They thought they, oh, they, thought they had everything. We be of Abraham's seed. And Jesus tells them, no. If you really knew the Father, then you would know me. So he condescended. Oh, he condescended, didn't he? We're going to take bread. We're going to take bread. A symbol of the body of the Son of God. A reminder that your God took your humanity. How do you know a God who is hidden behind light, unapproachable? The only way man knows God is through Jesus Christ. My beloved is gone down. The Son of God, with all the glory of the Father, humbled himself and became obedient and took our nature into union with his own. My beloved has gone down, condescended, so that we might find him in the garden. Yea, in his garden. Because they're his people. So often, this is where you will meet with him. You'll meet with him in the church. If you withdraw from the church, inevitably you will withdraw from Christ. And you won't even know it sometimes. You won't even know it. You'll think your life, there will be the new norm. <laughs> We've gotten accustomed to that some time ago. The new norm. The new norm of spirituality, life without the church. And we imagine that this is, this is fine. We, we, we can manage this. We can do this. It's not really that important. Religion's a personal thing. Salvation's personal. Absolutely it's personal. But not to the exclusion of the corporate. So much of what the Lord expresses in terms of His will for us is tied into our relationship with His people. So if you, if you avoid his disciples, we were praying over it. How will the world know that you're, you're my disciples if you've loved one to another? Oh, oh, behold, you have to actually have a relationship with these other people who know me, that the world can see something distinct in your love towards them. But if you're separate, they can't see that. Your existence, your testimony, your life, your spiritual life is intertwined into the spiritual life of other men and women who love Christ. You can't get away from it. So where do we find him? In his garden. That's where he is. So, it's an opportunity to explain Christ's presence in the church. She's able to explain it. My beloved has gone down into his garden. That's where you'll find him. But it's also an opportunity to explain Christ's purpose in the church. His purpose. My beloved has gone down into his garden to the beds of spices. The beds of spices. Yes, this, this is the fruit, isn't it? It's the fruit of the church. It's her, it's her product, her produce. And he's gone there to see. You see, because the sun is in perfect harmony with the spirit. The sun is in perfect, eternal harmony and fellowship with the Spirit. And so if the Spirit's working and producing something somewhere, the Son will be there to see the work of the Spirit. And so there in the garden of the church, there the Spirit is producing the, the fruit of the Spirit, the love, the joy, the peace, the long-suffering, the gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance. These things are they're, they're, they're there. 
And Christ wants to be there because they're the product of the Spirit. But note, also, to feed in the gardens, plural. I like that. I like, I like that there's the, the His garden, that's the church, broadly speaking. But there's also feed in the gardens. These are the, these are the individual congregations. That Christ takes time, not just for the church general, but for the church in its specific expressions and its local manifestations. And he goes among all the gardens and he doesn't look necessarily to say, oh, it's free Presbyterian, I'll definitely go there. No, <laughs> no. And sometimes I think people think I'm in the business of making you a free Presbyterian. God forbid. This place is about Christ. It's always about Christ. And free Presbyterianism is only anything if it's leading men and women and boys and girls to Christ. And the day may come when free Presbyterian churches aren't leading people to Christ. Then you run. It doesn't matter what the title is. What matters is what is functioning, what's going on. Beloved, it's, it's about feeding on Him. It's always about Him. And so He comes into these, some of them, or they, they maybe have a, a name, brethren, assembly, meeting house of the whatever. Presbyterian, Baptist, Methodist, Anglican. But his people are there. And he feeds. He feeds in the gardens. He goes into them all today. Yes, I come every Lord's Day and I think about the gospel sweeping over this land. I do. I think about it. I think about it sweeping over the entire world. Think about it regularly. I used to think about it all the time when I went to Australia and thought, we're kind of at the start of, of the Lord's day. And so we're preaching here, and as we preach, others are preaching. And this, this preaching, this, this tidal wave of, of Sabbath preaching is going over the entire world. And it's wonderful. And here we are at the latter point when I'm thinking of the nation, and there's a big tidal wave of preaching that rises and rises over North America. And the Lord bless Bless that preaching. Go into your gardens. Be with your people. Oh, look at the text. Let it sing into your heart. He goes to the beds of spices. He's looking to see. He's looking. Husband, are you loving your wife more? He's examining the produce. He's looking at you. He's looking at you, say, he says to you, you heard a word last Lord's Day that dealt with this sin or that matter. Are you beginning to respond? Is there a bloom in that area where there was no bloom before? Wife, how are you doing? Are you blossoming in the areas where you need to be? Children, obeying your parents, are you? You've been instructed in this way. Uh, he's looking for fruit. He goes down, look at it. The beds of spices, he's looking there. He's expecting to find something that's sweet-smelling to him. And he goes to feed in the gardens. He himself. He feeds there. He sits down. The table of the Lord. And there's a sense, of course, physically, he will not take of this until the marriage supper of the Lamb but there's a sense which by his spirit he comes and he dines with us. But two verbs. So he feeds. He feeds in the garden. He comes to participate of what brings delight to us. But it's more than that. He comes to gather the lilies. To gather lilies. Here are the lilies. It's the church again. Go back earlier in the book, you'll see that. And he's gathering the lilies. You know, you try to put in your mind's eye someone gathering lilies from the garden. Are they hasty or are they just gently moving through the garden? 
And they're looking, they're selecting to see which ones are ready. And they gently, very carefully pluck each lily, gently, and bring that lily in to gather with all other lilies, to be to him, to be near him. It's a wonderful picture. of the Lord bringing us into the final perfect fellowship that we will enjoy forever. Well, he comes to his garden and we see something of him. But he comes at times right down and he takes a lily and plucks it up. It is how the Lord takes his saints finally to be with himself in perfect fellowship forever. No death of the Christian is haphazard. No death of the Christian is unloving. No death of the Christian is indifferent in Christ's view. It is a careful selecting. This lily is ready. There may be some of us here this very year and Christ will come down into this garden and he will just take maybe one lily, maybe two lilies, maybe more. And he'll gather them with himself. That's what he does. He comes down to gather his people they may be with him where he is. My time is gone. But just to leave you with the fact that in verse 3 we find it spreads the testimony of the church. It spreads the testimony of the church. I am my beloved's and my beloved is mine. She reiterates a union. If you go back to chapter 2 verse 6, you'll see Something she's already said. Pardon me, 16, I think I said verse 6. Chapter 2, verse 16. My beloved is mine, and I am his. He feedeth among the lilies. What did she say this time? I am my beloved's, and my beloved is mine. He feedeth among the lilies. You see the maturity of her understanding? Earlier on, her understanding of her union began with her love to him. But as she has failed and been complacent and not been perfect, then to her delight and joy she learns that what comes first is his love to me. I am my beloved's. And my beloved is mine. So he is. He's ours. He's ours today. Let me ask you very bluntly, is he yours? Do you know you belong to him? Absolutely, covenantally, indissolubly, eternally, you're his. You can participate today not out of fellowship, but in fellowship. Not because you're worthy, but because he is worthy. Confessing your sins and rejoicing in the truth. We love him because he first loved us. And here he presents his love in symbol, simple yet profound. I gave my body. I shed my blood. I did this for you. May the Lord help us. Let's pray. Let's seek the Lord. With their heads bowed, let me just remind you 
that the table of the Lord is for the Lord's people. If you're not saved or you're walking unrepentantly before the Lord, this is not for you to participate in. It's not a trifling matter. It's not something to neglect or act as if it's not important. This is a time for repentance, reconciliation, rejoicing. But if your heart is hard, if there's a breach between you and others that you will not even attempt to resolve, this is a fellowship meal. It's for those in fellowship with Christ. Lord, I pray that you'll help us to see your love for us. We pray that our hearts will be drawn out after thee. Help us this morning to know that thou art here feasting with us commanding blessings upon us. May our eyes see thee. May our hearts melt before thee. May our sins be washed away by thee. May our hope be strengthened in thee. Help us, we pray.